0: Good morning again, everybody, that your week has been productive. It's always different when the weather's nice. 70 degrees outside makes you just feel like you can do a lot more. It's a lot more enjoyable to be able to get outside and get some projects done. I was able to finish some projects, start some others that are still working on this week. Um, And then in the middle of all of those types of things and enjoying the weather, we get to start a new book It's always exciting to make those times of study and to outline different things and go through different points in the chapters and come across some very interesting ones. You know, I find some of these interesting points different as I gauge different hard topics I've gone through in the past. Um, And as you see these types of things come out in Scripture, it's as clear as day for you. Um, It's takes me back to some past discussions, you know, as we go through hard subjects such as, you know, we went through the the spiritual gifts, Um, fully understanding that there are people on different spectrums um, within their understanding of spiritual gifts, but we still went through and just spoke the word and it was fun, you know? And as I think of different arguments that I've had in theology over the years, um, when I read certain texts, it's like, see, it's right here, it's clear as day, what's wrong with you? You know, and you get to those points as a pastor, and you're reading through those things, and you're like, okay, but let me just, let me just preach on these passages here that I already agree with my points. You know, and I was reminded this week as I was reading through Zephaniah and seeing some of those things from past discussions come up, um, what people like Charles Spurgeon would do. You know, if you know anything about Charles Spurgeon, he definitely had some leanings in certain ways. But he would say oftentimes, when I preach from something that might seem contrary to what I believe, I preach the way that it is in the word and allow that person to wrestle with it because that's the way that it is in the word. And whenever we come across hard topics like that, I try to do the same thing. I try to to present it for you and hope that you would wrestle with it. Hope that you come here each week to, to listen and hear the word of God so that you can wrestle with that in your life and make that a part of you. You know, the goal is to draw you closer to the Father, deeper in your relationship with Jesus, being transformed by the Spirit, experiencing the Trinity as a whole. You know, with that being said, we're going to be starting um, the next book here in the prophet Isaiah, or Zephaniah. Uh, if you want to join me there, um, we're going to be here for the next three weeks, and then we'll go on to Haggai after that as well. So far, I think that the, the little mini-series here on the Minor Prophets has been fun. We've been able to enjoy a lot of deeper learning as we talk through some of the history of Israel. So, this morning we're going to read the first chapter. Beginning in verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth," declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal, and the name of the idolatrous, idol, and the name of the idolatrous priests, along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, and those who have turned back from following the Lord. ...who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated His guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons... ...and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold... And those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills, wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will do no good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there, a day of wrath is that day. A day of distress distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung, neither their silver nor their gold. Shall be able to deliver them in the day of wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Father, as we begin this new book, I just pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to your truths, help us to understand uh, what was going on during this time and the meaning behind an understanding of the day of the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so you will find that Zephaniah is very direct. He is to the point. And as we start off any new book, I like to do some background just to kind of get us uh, understanding what's going on, to familiarize ourselves with the audience and the time frame. Um, You know, sometimes when reading the Bible, we think that it's nice, neat, and chronological order. But with Zephaniah, he actually comes before Habakkuk. Um, they, they serve during the same time period. They serve under the same king, but he's a little bit before. So we're going to see a lot of the same things going on, whereas Zephaniah is going to give us a lot more detail to the people what's going on, whereas Habakkuk dealt with the issue of evil and the struggle that he has with that. So he is a prophet to the king, Josiah. Um, now, it's believed that he was, the prof- he was a prophet before the law is found in the temple, um, there's a little bit of evidence in that in the text to to indicate that um, in terms of the repentance that would happen after they found that law. A little bit more about some of the king situation. So, a couple kings before you had King Hezekiah. He was a good king. He took down the altars. He took down the high places, um, and everything went well for those in Judah at that time. His son Manasseh, however, was wicked. He reinstated all the high places. He built temples to Baal, to Ashtoreth, uh, which would be the god of in Canaan, to Chemosh, the Moabites, and then Milcom, the Amorites. He would install altars to worship the sun, moon, and stars. Um, these, this would have been influence from Nineveh trickling down across the northern border. You had sexually, sexual immorality practice under religious pretenses. Um, and of course... Child sacrifice was all the rage at this time. If you want to read more about Manasseh, it's 2 Kings 21. If Josiah's reign would be 2 Kings 22, if you want to do some of that background this week. Um, But this is in the environment that Judah is in as Josiah takes over. And Josiah is eight years old when he becomes king. So, how many eight year olds do I have in here today? No, Becca's eight, Jethro's eight. You guys want to be, you're eight? You guys want to be king? Wanna be president? Lead a nation? Right? <laughs> good thing that wasn't on a microphone. But you had Josiah step up to be king in Israel. And he he was a good king. He did everything that, that was good under God's eyes, except for one thing. He had this vision where he wanted to unify. The, the northern tribes, again, with the southern tribes. And that didn't go well for him. You know, it, he was so sold out on that vision that he went into battle when he wasn't supposed to. He disobeyed God, and he died in that battlefield. But that's a little bit about the kings. You know, overall, this message of Zephaniah, again, it's very direct. It, it's very imperative. It lacks grace. It lacks charm. He's not trying to win over any friends in this letter. Um, primarily, It's poetry. Um, but again, it's coarse in its language, so it's not, it's not, you can compare it to Isaiah, but Isaiah is a lot more detailed, it's a lot more flowy. It'd be similar if you were to compare the Gospel of Mark to the Gospel of Luke. You know, Mark is very abrupt, immediately this happened, immediately this happened, immediately this happened, whereas Luke is a lot more detailed, he gives you more about the parables and things like that. So his message is very clear It's very vigorous. I mean, nobody who had heard him speak or listened to him or um, read the writings could say that they did not hear about the coming day of the Lord. See, the day of the Lord is a very prominent theme within Zephaniah. Um, Of the Old Testament books, he probably talks more about the day of the Lord than anyone else. Um, It's a phrase that has multiple meanings in what it is referring to. And that can be kind of confusing for us. Because when we think of Day of the Lord, we're thinking of the Second Coming, or we're thinking of Revelation twenty-two. Okay, Day of the Lord as a phrase simply means it is a literal day or a time in which God is working in recognizable ways. Oftentimes, it's tied to judgment, um, but as we are looking for the Day of the Lord, we can see that as for believers, it will also have blessings upon it as well. So again. We're going to be looking at the different levels of how to understand this phrase as we go through this book. So let's kind of break down this first chapter a little bit, make some different connections in scriptures um, to see what's going on. It starts off kind of in a typical fashion, introducing who he is. It is a little odd that he goes out four generations. Um, A clue to this could be the first one, Cushy. Cush is... um, Ethiopia, so it could be that Zephaniah is a foreign Jew, and he is listing out this many generations in order to give himself reliability, credibility before the people that he's going to speak to. Um, He's tracing his lineage back. Um, A lot of times people will see Hezekiah and think that it's King Hezekiah. We honestly don't know why he would leave out the term king if he's related to him. Is beyond me, so it's kind of an assumption either way on that. And then, of course, you see the time period, which is important for us to to understand what's going on in the culture in in Judah at this time as he is serving under King Josiah. So he has a coming judgment that he's going to be talking about. Now, when you look at verses 2 through 6, what you see is a forest to trees view, meaning you have the big picture and it's going to be narrowed down to a single tree. To a single particular. So it's a generalized view down to a narrow view. Okay, that's the style of how he is writing this. And in the first two verses, there, verses two and three, in that section, you see how it's described more of mankind and the world is going to experience this coming judgment. Um, It's kind of reminiscent of the flood and how things are being described as they're all going to be swept away. But we know it's not going to be like the flood because of the promises of God, right? So we can see how this is being described, how everything is going to be affected, how mankind would be cut off. So these two verses are the large-scale view of what he's writing in terms of the coming destruction. Then it narrows a bit, and he identifies Judah as the one that's going to be judged. Now remember, we also have Jeremiah, Joel, and Habakkuk who are prophesying during this time period as well, during the reign of Josiah. Um, so you can, you can glean from all of these other prophets what's going on. But here Zephaniah zeroes in on four targeted groups. Um, you have the Baal worshipers, the astrologists, those who are trusting in Milcom, uh, and those who are not seeking the Lord. These are the reasons that the judgment is going to be coming. Now let's break down these groups a little bit. Because I think that will bring us some context for our own hearts and minds this morning as we apply this. So, Baal worshipers. Here, this would refer to idolatry in general. Throughout the Bible, Baal worshipers become synonymous with idol worship. Okay, As you see, this is being described um, in whatever form it might be. So, as we see this as being a reason for being judged, we want to be able to check our own idols in our hearts. And, of course, they can be numerous. Then you have those who are worshiping the stars, the moon, and the sun. Again, influence coming from Nineveh. But they would go up on the rooftops in order to do this. Um, So it's a form of idolatry that's running rampant within Judah right now. And we see this today as well. Uh, We still have horoscopes. We have astrologies. We have people that are... Um, believing in their zodiac signs, believing in crystals, life on other planets, whatever it might mean. Again, this leans kind of towards some superstition and a little bit more idolatry. And then you have Milcom. Now, this term can also be a reference to Molech, who is a foreign god. And again, just like Baal, is synonymous with foreign gods in the Bible. Um, Another interesting thing, this term is also closely related to the Hebrew term king. So it's a way that people are also worshiping governments to save them or putting their trust and their hope in the kings. So what we want to see in this section, though, is the syncretism that's happening in Judah. Now, I know Mike talked about this a couple weeks ago. But here they're claiming to worship God, but they're bringing in other beliefs as well. The people are giving God a half-hearted devotion while swearing to another god. You know, nothing is perhaps more deceiving than a community of believers that looks good on the outside, but in reality are worshiping something entirely different. And then you have those who have turned their backs on the Lord, those who are no longer seeking him. You know, so far in the first three, we see um, some overly pagan worship. We see some synchristic worship. And now we see those who are apathetic, those who are complacent in worship, those that really don't care, those who aren't really seeking him. And as we dive into this, I want to maybe start with a personal question. Are you here this morning because you want to be? You ever go to church because you have to? It's a loaded question. I mean, the reasons for that could be a mile long, right? I think we all go through seasons like that in our life where maybe maybe you have a, a love for Jesus, but you're kind of lacking in your relationship with him. We go because our wife wants us to go. We go because our kids need to see us there. We go because our parents drag us. Maybe the main reason we come to church is to see our friends, not really coming to worship God, or maybe there's an indifference to him, and that would be a reason for destruction that is coming upon Judah. I mean, can we make the connection from week to week how, as believers, God does not want us to be complacent. He doesn't want us to be indifferent. He doesn't want us to be lukewarm. Revelation says that he will spit us out of his mouth if we are lukewarm. Now, with this term seek, uh, I want to foreshadow a little bit with you. For those that like to read ahead or don't like to be, you know, stuck wrestling from week to week, the issue of seeking does have an answer in chapter 2, verse 3, where he says, Seek the Lord, all all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So it's the responsibility of the believer to seek him, not to be indifferent. We'll get to more of that a little bit next week, but it is a pivotal part of the entire book that we want to hold into our hearts and minds as we're studying this to understand the term seek as well as the day of the Lord. So from the people groups here that are going to be judged, we transition in verse 7. Silence. Is mentioned again. If you recall, is mentioned in Habakkuk in chapter two, verse twenty, uh, where the whole world would be silent before the Lord. And you think about silence before the Lord. It's interesting because you would think that these four people groups would have a lot to say in terms of excuses. You think of the personal question that I asked you. You would have a lot to say in terms of excuses to defend yourself. But Romans one tells us that man is without excuse. So the excuses that we offer are going to be worthless. To where silence before the Lord will be better. You know, our own laws say you have the right to remain silent. Use it. Because you see in this transition here, it shows that the finality of the judgment of Judah is coming. Nothing else that they say is going to matter. Nothing else that they do, they're not going to be able to pay their way out of this. Punishment is coming. Silence would be so deafening because of the weight, because of the glory, because of the majesty of God that silence would be demanded and then you see some of the sins that are going to be listed beginning in verse 8 you see how the kings and the royalty are dressing themselves in foreign fashions they're being influenced by pagan cultures now I like to do weird things what if one Sunday I came in a Buddhist garb what would you think probably look pretty nice right But you might be thinking, what are you doing here? What's this influence behind what you're doing? So they're wearing clothes, they're wearing fashions from the other countries. They're more concerned with what other countries thought of them than God. In verse 9, we see those who are leaping over the threshold. Now, this is kind of a a superstitious type of thing. Um, It goes back to the worshiping of the god Dagon. Where there'd be inscriptions on the floor and people would jump over those inscriptions, over the threshold. Uh, Very similar to the ever popular saying, don't step on a crack or you break your mother's back. But it's more than a popular saying, it goes back in scripture. 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, say this. Early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were laying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. So again, this is, it goes back to this scene, so it's showing how in Judah you had people that are worshiping foreign gods and holding to their superstitions. Uh, you think about Christians who talk about karma, for instance, something that is very popular in today's day and age, but it's Eastern religion influence. It has no place in our thought process. But because it's a part of the culture, we speak to it. We entertain it. So again, it would be similar to this type of thing. Um, And then the final sin is those who bring violence and deceit into their master's house. So again, bringing this paganism into the royal palaces, into the temples to institute violence. Um, Again, much of this would probably do with Assyrian influence because they're the conquering force at this time still. Babylon is just coming up. But it's because of these sins that judgment is coming. And Zephaniah is describing Jerusalem um, from this point on and the different gates that are going on. You have the, the, the part of the city called Mortar in verse 11. This would be more of your business district, like our, our Wall Street type of thing where different trading happened in this area. And it's just like a ghost town throughout Jerusalem. And I really liked the thoroughness that's being described and how the Lord is going to take a lamp and look through the streets very similar to the angel of death in Egypt going from house to house looking for the blood on the doorposts as he is thoroughly going to judge this land and what struck me the most in this judgment is verse 12 to those who are complacent again going back to the indifference from before but you know in Hebrew, the way that this is being described is basically people are just complacent to the point where they're just kind of sitting back, watching everything unfold while drinking wine. And it's similar to today's, you know, where's my popcorn? Because I'm going to watch this drama unfold. And you're just complacent, wanting to be entertained. And how they say, you know, I, I, the, the Lord does not, he's not going to do anything good, he's not going to do anything uh, of ill again, it shows the influence and the apathy uh, of the people, their indifference to the ways of the Lord. And I feel that this is a pitfall and a trap that many of us can fall into. Now, we probably won't be get caught you know, going into a mosque and worshiping Allah or things like that. But we struggle with idolatry in many different forms. Idolatry takes us away from our relationship with the Lord, and it puts our focus on something else to the point that we begin to just have a lazy, like, a melancholy type of life towards God to where we just, you know, it is what it is. I've got other things to do. Other things are more important. This is an attitude of indifference that I think that we need to check our hearts for because we can very easily get into the mindset of what is the point of all of this? I've got bills to pay. I've got food to put on the table. I've got work to do. I don't got time for all of this. It's a perspective that we can easily fall into in American life. One that is focused on the here and now, where I'm building my own kingdom for myself rather than focusing on what the Lord would be doing. I think that this is a valid thought that could be found among us, but one that will routinely See the judgment of God coming down. Again, just a reason to check our hearts for apathy and indifference this morning. Verses fourteen through eighteen speaks more to the day of the Lord and the judgment that speaks of the near future for Jerusalem, and then the future for us. So this section is a view of the trees going out to the forest. Many times in poetry you're going to have these things that they call chiastic structures where it starts one way and then ends the same way. It's like a bookmark. So he starts with the forest to trees view and then he's going to end this chapter with the the trees to the forest view going back out to the large general picture. And everything that is described within the, the coming day of the Lord are just samples, whether that's the near future or the more distant future, or the apocalyptic times. They're just samples of what's to come in the final judgment and tribulation that will happen. And what it does is it gives a sense of urgency and imminence, or at least that's what it's supposed to do for the people of Judah at this time, to understand that in God's timing, this will happen, that he will judge, but of course, he is patient with us. You know, we wake up today understanding that we are one day closer to that time, and we continue to pray, for that day, for his will to come to pass. You know, as I read through this section this week, I really loved uh, spending some time in verses 15 and 16 as it poetically describes the day. You know, it's not flowery, it's not beautiful, it's tragic. You sit with this imagery of what's being described. Again, it might not be as easy for us because we're in the Midwest and we're not in this war-torn country, But you sit with the imagery of what's being described in the Word of God. You see this type of devastation, these types of fears. You know, perhaps if you go into a bigger city or a rougher area of city, you're a little bit more on alert. You have your defenses up uh, of what could happen. You know, but if you went to my house right now, you can walk right in the front door. Doors are still unlocked. Got a scary puppy for a guard dog, though. But you think about this description. I suggest just sit with it this week. You know, no matter what we tell ourselves or build up for ourselves in our lives, it's nothing compared to the greatness of God. We could tell ourselves that everything is okay, that everything is honky-dory, and that everything is just going to work out the way that we want it to. But again, that's us sitting on the throne and not God sitting on the throne the distress that's coming is going to allow them to feel their insignificance it's going to allow them to feel blind as it says in the word because they have sinned you know this this strong imagery in this section is enough to want us to make us want to catch our breath a little bit to realize what's going on to think all over again how certain we are about the judgment of God that's coming. How awesome that day is going to be that we can't even really describe it. We can get some of these mental pictures, but I think it's going to pale in comparison to the actual day. And then you think how foolish and senseless it is to offend God, to demean his holiness, his holy laws. For there is coming a day when all of the ungodly will face this intense wrath directly from the hand of God. The jealousy of the Lord is going to come out. And our wealth, our possessions, are not going to be able to appease him. Because sin needs to be paid for, but the wages of sin is death. Silver and gold will do nothing. Blood is going to be spilled. Bodies are going to be strewn about like dung littering the ground. Everything that we know here on earth will come to an end. And that's the way he ends his chapter. It's upbeat. It's exciting. But it makes you ponder. And it makes you think. You're left seeming to want more. But just like with Habakkuk, sometimes we have to sit in the darkness of sin to be able to appreciate the light that we stand in. You know, we read from 1 Thessalonians 5 today for our call to worship. And it talks about how we are people of the light and we walk in the light. But the indifference and the apathy that we experience takes that light for granted. So we don't appreciate the salvation that we've received. We don't live in that way. We just treat it as a ticket to heaven. So this morning as we transition to a time of communion, I want us to come face to face with judgment. The wages of sin is Death. It's a truth that's plainly seen in the Bible. started out in Genesis 2, carried out in Romans 6.23. But God in his mercy and his grace provided a way out to have sin atoned for. And it was through the sending of his son, Jesus, to willingly die once and for all. The payment of sin was placed on him. And for the believer, we believe that through the death of Jesus, our sins are paid for. His blood was spilled to pay the debt that we owe. Our only hope can be in Him for salvation. Because God's final judgment is coming. And this morning, what I want us to do is to sit and spend some time in reflection to weigh apathy, to weigh indifference, to weigh the idols that might be in our heart to weigh the syncretism that we might be bringing into our faith, the otherworldly ideas that are incorporated to our faith. To seek him for forgiveness and to repent. Paul gives us a very clear warning, very clear, very plain, to not take communion in an unworthy manner. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So this morning I charge you to think carefully before taking communion. Don't treat this with indifference. Don't treat this with apathy. Don't treat this with complacency. Treat this with the honor that is due it for what he has paid on the cross. Spend some time in reflection. At this time, I'd like to ask the men to bring the bread forward. Here at Harvest, we celebrate an open communion to where if you are a professed believer in Christ, you are welcome to join. Um, we do